Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Hello and welcome to this episode of MHPN Presents In The First Person, a podcast series about the lived experience of mental health. My name is Mark Creamer. I'm a clinical psychologist based in Melbourne, Australia. And in this episode, we're taking a look at the lived experience of mental health from the perspective of a first responder, in this case, a volunteer firefighter. And this episode is a little bit different because our guest today was a client of mine and we worked together Uh, to treat his PTSD. And so I'm going to be contributing a bit from my perspective about our relationship, particularly around the middle of the episode. But without further ado, to help us explore these issues, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Alex. Welcome, Alex. And thank you very much for agreeing to share your experiences with us. No problem at all, Mark. Thanks for your time. Thank you. I'm also extremely pleased that Alex's wife, Lynn, has agreed to join us to provide a really important partner and family perspective. So welcome, Lynn. Thank you, Mark. Good to see you again. Good to see both of you again, actually, (laughs) after a while away. Really appreciate both of you actually making the time to come and share your experiences with us. To kick us off, Alex, you've been a volunteer firefighter with the CFA now for many years, the Country Fire Authority. For those listeners who are not based in Victoria or perhaps not even in Australia, can you just tell me a little bit about the CFA? So the CFA was established uh, about 170 years ago, I guess. So it's got a proud history. And it's essentially the fire service that covers rural and regional Victoria. It's largely a volunteer service, so 60,000 volunteers, about 1,000 permanent staff as well. And they're scattered throughout about 1,200 brigades that are located mostly in small towns throughout Victoria. The service gets about 30,000 incidents or call-outs per year, so you can imagine that's... can't do the maths, but it's a lot... Mm. (laughs) And everyone carries a pager on them, so they're on call 24-7. And look, overall, it's a fantastic organisation. You get, it's really a community service, a necessary community service to the Victorian people. And it's it's lovely to be involved, to be quite honest. Yeah, quite. And I think that that issue about it being a community service is an interesting one. I wonder, Lynn, if you could just say, does it, would it normally involve families? Would you have been involved at all, for example, in CFA? There's opportunity, certainly, for partners to be involved. Um, so we had have a young family, so a little bit tricky for both of us to get on the back of the truck. Um, there's certainly opportunity in areas within the um, organisation for, let's say, traditional roles of the perhaps the male on the back of the truck and the female in the auxiliary um, group, and no less no less of a job. But um, yeah, so there's opportunity, but because of our family uh, and age, more so, this was Alex's thing. Yeah, not mine. But am I right in saying that some of your children, your grown-up children, were also involved? Absolutely, yes. um, There's a youth program for running um, in the CFA, so the ability to use, um, I guess, traditional firefighting skills under a competition format. So each of them were involved with that and a great supporting program for youth to do. So very pleased that they've been involved and I can see the impact on their lives. They're a little bit older now. I can see the impact that that has had for the positive for them. Yeah, absolutely. And it it says a lot about the organisation, doesn't it? That that kind of community, kind of broad support stuff, I think is really 
important in terms of loads of benefits. I wonder if it also comes with some disadvantages, and we might look at that a little bit later in the podcast. At this point, though, you know, we've talked about those positives of the community uh, aspects of it, but obviously um, much of the work is difficult, Alex, and I'm wondering if you just tell me generally about the kinds of, of incidents that the CFA might be called out to. Yeah, no problem. So by its nature, look, it's an emergency service, so we respond to traumatic and chaotic scenes. That's what we do. <clears throat> and they could include bushfires, um, in my case, uh, house and factory fires as well, uh, road rescue or MVAs as they're known, motor vehicle accidents, um, hazardous material type incidents as well. And also, importantly, probably what people around Victoria would know most is these large campaign fires that have happened in history. So like Ash Wednesday in 1983 and more recently in 2009, Black Saturday. I think it's an important point you make that, you know, we can be forgiven for thinking the CFA goes to fires full stop. Mm. Actually, you've got a whole range of things. And certainly when I started working with CFA people way back in about 1990, I was astonished that they were attending these motor vehicle accidents. It was quite horrendous mm. being asked to do. Look, can I put you on the spot, Alex, and just ask you um, to tell us a little bit more about some of the events that you've been to? We don't want too much detail. But yeah, just to- sure. Look, no problem. Look, I've been involved for 20 years. Uh, Lynn here is from the country. I'm from Melbourne originally. And Lynn said, look, if we're going to move to the country, Alex, you better get involved with the community. My dad was and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So I, had, I gave it a crack and I so thought... So there's a kind of strong expectation yeah, that you yeah. should if you're an able-bodied male, yeah? Yeah, and I thought, why not? So I went down to the fire shed and you know what, it's been the best experience um, apart from what, I mean, to what we'll talk mm. about, but overall it's been positive. I'm a firefighter, I was a fire investigator, which is a really cool thing to do. Also, I was the chair of the district strategy group, I guess, so even beyond the operational to the, the strategy planning side of things. I go to about 200 call-outs a year, I guess. Um, that's fallen off a lot now, uh, depends on the season. Over my time, I've probably had 10 to 15 MVA incidents that have been fatalities. Many of those have been first on scene. Um, and you were talking about the community aspect. Well, local people, local roads, local families, you know. Mm-hmm. And some of the bad times for me have been actually talking to the mums and dads afterwards when their son has been killed. And been to many major fires, um, went to Black Saturday, Went to Marysville, first on scene, this sort of stuff, 34 fatalities in that in that incident. And went there many times, 17 times in 30 days, which which the tragedy was immense and had impact on me. It, it is, um, and you know, in some ways quite extraordinary that we're asking volunteers and, um, you know, country folk to be taking on this kind of role. Um, the fact is, though, that you coped very well for a long while, and I, and I guess partly this community support that you're getting and so on. Uh, but after a while, these things do sort of accumulate. And I'm wondering, and I'll ask both of you, when you first realised that this kind of stuff was perhaps having an impact on you? Mark, for me, in the early days, I think there was a steep learning curve and there was not much uh, traumatic, or we'll call it death, uh, early on in my, we'll call it, volunteer career. Um, and when it did happen, 
There was an informal network which seemed to be quite active of people calling and checking in, I guess. Lynn and the family have been always supportive, so it felt great and it probably gave me an identity away from my normal work persona, professional work persona, in the community and I really liked that. So early on, things were fine um, and as, as Lynn said, the kids were involved with CFA Juniors and it was a great atmosphere and still is. And I guess after a while, uh, things started to go not so well. Not so well, yeah. yeah. I was going to bring Lynn in, actually. Yeah, I mean, did you sure. notice anything uh, with Alex? Hindsight, hindsight's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I would, no. No, no okay. No, and I, I think I've, looking back at this, I think for me it was a perfect storm of the ages and stages we were at in our lives. We had three small children. At the time, I was a full-time mum. The youngest was under one. So full-time mum. Remember, Alex had mentioned that he'd been involved for 20 years. So over a great length of time, subtle changes happened to Alex that I would just put down to the stresses of young children, stress loads of uh, work in a serious role that he has. So no, embarrassingly or shamefully, or perhaps I just wasn't aware mm. of what mm. to look for. And, and as you say, um, the signs and signs that you did see, you just put down to, well, this is part of a stressful life kind of thing. But, but clearly things did progress from there, Alex, and, and things got a bit worse. Um, do, you, you started to develop more clear kinds of signs and symptoms? Yeah, and again, uh, Lynn's right, hindsight's wonderful. And I'd say around 10 years ago from now, so what's that, 2012, which is three years after Black Saturday, I think the first thing I noticed was my weekends were not so good anymore. And I put that down to the fact that when you're at work, there's a structure, and then when the weekends come, it's suddenly unstructured and you wake up on Saturday morning and go, well, now, and then suddenly get a bit stressed mm. for some reason. I don't know why. Probably, too, because I was at home, which meant my pager could go off at any time, which put me on edge, mm. where before it didn't put me on edge. So my symptoms after talking to you, Mark, were, sounds like they're fairly classic, unwanted memories that I used to fight a hell of a lot which made me distressed. Flashbacks at night, uh, waking up at a certain time every night and we, through our exploration, Mark, we realised that that's the, worst, the time that I got called to my worst MVA, triple fatality. So for some reason my brain held onto that and woke up <laughs> every night religiously at that time. Hypervigilance around driving on the Hume Freeway down to Melbourne. It's pretty weird looking at a bloke going 80 kilometres an hour on the, uh, down the hume. All these trucks are going past and I'm just, in my brain, I'm throwing my hands up going, well, you're all going to die, aren't you? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have to pull you out of the wreckage. Mm -hmm. So there's this catastrophisation component as well. Strong avoidance of going back to the Marysville region. And I, I think, too, I probably had a moral injury along the way as well. Mm -hmm. um, there's a few things that happened about being unappreciated in the community. So if you add all that up, there was a few other things too, but if you add all that up, look, look the, problem, the problem for me was it, it happened and 
I had a lack of awareness, so I didn't know anything was wrong. I was looking back at my notes of our, our sessions with Alex, and um, one of the things I noticed in the first or second session he came in, and he said that he'd asked the family members what they'd noticed, and each of them in turn gave their opinions, which in itself was an extraordinarily brave thing to do, but each of them talked about irritability, intolerance, a general sort of low frustration tolerance, as it were, as being the signs that they were picking up. So this was not the dad that they'd known around the house and it I guess often when it comes to something like that then it's a prompt Mark Hmm. I just wanted to jump in Um, it's absolutely agree with what you're saying very brave move on their behalf but it was actually Alex who instigated that discussion with them after after a conversation he had with someone he met at a public forum so that was directly the, the link. Very good point. And we will talk about that, actually, because I'm interested in, in, in what prompted that. But I, I just quickly, before we go on to that, was there anything that stopped you seeking help earlier? I suppose it was really a failure to recognise or perhaps a refusal to recognise that, that there was anything wrong. Personally, for me, that was exactly it. I had no idea that something was wrong. If I knew earlier on, I definitely would have got some help. It was not a worry for me. It was more about the fact I was just plainly unaware. (laughs) But eventually you did take the plunge and you did some research and came across me somehow. And and I wonder if it's okay with you, given that our audience is predominantly health professionals, if it's okay if I just talk for a minute about our assessment and what I thought when I first saw you. And I have to say right at the outset, Alex was a great client and I think the clinicians among our listening audience will understand what I'm saying when I talk about the fact he was very motivated, he was very insightful, he was very organised and he had great family support and you know all those all go really well so so we were kind of off to a good start if i can talk quickly about the formulation so again the clinicians among you will know about formulating cases and the five p's of formulation where we talk about the presenting problem the predisposing factors the precipitating factors the perpetuating factors and the protective factors by putting all that information together we can just begin to answer the question about why this person has presented for treatment now so in terms of alex well the presenting problem was and alex has already run through a few of these symptoms but was quite clearly ptsd or post-traumatic stress disorder moderate level symptoms right across the board intrusion re-experiencing symptoms some active avoidance some negative thoughts and emotions and some very high arousal so clearly ptsd quite a lot of associated anxiety but very little or no depression no significant substance abuse. So at face value, Alex was a very good candidate for trauma-focused treatment. In terms of predisposing factors, I won't go into too much detail about Alex's background for privacy reasons, but I think suffice to say that I got the impression that his family of origin was a bit emotionally restricted, that it wasn't especially warm and affectionate and and perhaps not a great environment for learning how to express and deal with powerful emotions. And I'm sure Alex won't mind me saying that both his parents were World War II vets and that those kind of experiences perhaps had an important part to play in terms of their uh, emotional expression and so on. But look, I'd still say there was nothing terribly significant and that that far and away the most important predisposing factors uh, were in fact his long history of exposure to trauma in the uh, CFA. 
So then we go on to precipitating factors. What tipped it over the edge? And Alex has talked about the Black Saturday fires and the 10-year anniversary. And I think I'm right in saying, Aunt Alex, that you were asked to give a talk about the fires on the 10-year anniversary. Can you just tell us a little bit about that as a kind of precipitating factor? Yeah, sure, Mark. So again, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And I think probably around 2018, 19, things ramped up a bit. And I think we've talked about this before, Mark, that it's that bucket concept of trauma accumulation. Look, everyone's bucket size is different and fills at different rates. Mine just happened to get to the top Mm. (laughs) at around 18, 19, and that was because of a whole bunch of stuff that kept going on, you know, trauma and more house fires and MBAs and all that sort of stuff. And I think my symptoms now, when I recognise, got worse at the time. I started to have fatalistic thoughts about my family. Um, You know, one example is completely irrational. I heard on the radio the night before that 7am in the morning is when most people hit kangaroos and have car accidents. So Lynn leaves with one of my sons to go to a CFA event in rural Victoria at (laughs) 6.55 in the morning. So what does Alex do? He uh, has a panic attack and curls up into a ball in the driveway, you know. So things like that happened more. Every time my pager went off, I felt like vomiting, to be honest. Mm. So obviously a nervous reaction. My flashbacks were worse. I remember sitting bolt upright in bed and Lynn saying it's okay, everything's all right. So things were just getting worse. It just happened to be getting worse during that time. I also had this growing feeling of being misunderstood by everyone, Mm. family, work, and, you know, the frustrating part about that, Mark, is that my intentions were always good. Mm. In all these interactions that I had with all these people, my intentions were always good, but for some reason they were getting misinterpreted. So it's got to be me because it was more than just one person misinterpreting. Anyway, so then the 10-year anniversary came up and uh, my role at work required me to present to a couple of hundred people in Melbourne. I wrote this presentation, no problem, got onto the stage, started to flick through the slides and talk about it, turned around and looked at the big screen, you know, with the devastation pictures on it and I just broke down and cried. Mm. And then I knew at that point that something was wrong, Mm. but I still didn't know that I was sick. And this is a bit weird, but you know how you have those fleeting moments of meeting people in in your life? I I come off the stage and tears in my eyes and stuff, and this unknown lady came up to me and she just put her hand on my shoulder and said, I think you need to get some treatment. Mm. Don't know who she was. So, Mm. very important. Yeah, do you want to comment on that at all? Just thankful for that lady to say something, because it obviously is coming from someone who understood that there was treatment available and what the symptoms were. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, w- we can only speculate about what would have happened if she hadn't and whether you'd have gone back into your shell and pushed back under and so absolutely, on. Absolutely, Mark. I do wonder if, if Alex hadn't done that presentation, where would we be today? Because, as I said, hindsight's magnificent. I didn't see this unfolding. I thought it was, uh, it was such a slow increments of change over time. I thought it was... Uh, a personality shift of some sort. I certainly have some mental health issues in my family and this was not that. This mm. is not, this was, in my mind, this was not schizophrenia, depression, anxiety. It was not, you know, there's the key ones that I've come mm. across and also I- any past PTSD that I'd worked with, not as, not obviously as a, in an intimate um, person in my life, but 
they didn't present as Alex was presenting to me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think it's a good point that there's no right or wrong way to present with PTSD and we see all sorts of different clinical pictures and, and therefore it's often missed. Let me push on though. So precipitating factors then, so we had this escalation of symptoms that got really pretty difficult to hold and then this tipping point of giving you talk, you know, so pretty idiosyncratic kind of thing. And then perpetuating factors, well, I think probably Alex was working in a very high-stress occupation, and it was an occupation that brought him into frequent contact with reminders of his CFA events. I think his continued involvement as a volunteer in the CFA was perpetuating. I think his kind of desire to continue functioning at a very high level at work and in the CFA and at home never show any cracks. I think that pressure also is a perpetuating factor. Our final P is protective factors, and he had plenty. So he had excellent social support, as we've talked about, especially family, but also friends. He had strong pre-morbid functioning, so no psych history that we were aware of. Strong functioning occupationally, relationships-wise, and so on. No substance abuse, no depression, so on. Good insight. So prognostically, I thought it was pretty good, and I was kind of cautiously optimistic. So we finished our assessment, and then we start to talk about treatment goals. What do you think were your goals for treatment? What did you hope that we could achieve? Oh, look, just quickly, I just wanted to understand what was going on and to tackle it. I am that type of person, I guess. If something's wrong, I want to fix it. And I guess, in summary, I'd forgotten what it was like to not be stressed and hypervigilant, and I was simply worn out and knowing, knowing that that was making me ineffective as a person. Did you have any particular hopes, Lynn? Uh, for me, um, I dared not hope until I saw evidence of change happening which was, I have to say, was immediate. Mm. I think I think immediate. And if not, it was yeah, within one or two mm. appointments. So thinking back now, I don't think I did hope. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Another illustration of what a great client Alex was was that he came to me with a list of five goals. You know, not many clients would do that. And they were really about coming to terms with, with some of these really big events that he had been to and managing some of these symptoms. So I just want to talk briefly again for the benefit of the clinicians about our treatment plans. Alex was an ideal candidate really for a trauma-focused kind of approach, and that is the evidence-based treatment of choice for PTSD. It was also entirely consistent with his treatment goals, and of course that's really important in any treatment plan. So for me, what does that mean? It means starting off with a bit of psychoeducation, explaining what PTSD is and what treatment will involve. And this is about instilling a sense of hope and kind of positive expectations about treatment. We provide some simple symptom management kind of strategies in the three broad domains of physical, cognitive and behavioural. And this is about helping Alex to, to feel more in control of his symptoms and so on before we go on to the real work of treatment. The guts of treatment really is, in this case, was prolonged exposure. So this is the opportunity to confront these painful memories repeatedly in a safe and controlled environment. Forgive me for using jargon, but frequently enough and for long enough to allow the traumatic memory network to be modified and these powerful emotions that are associated with it to gradually reduce. So that was the guts of treatment. And then moving on to possibly some cognitive restructuring, looking at issues like guilt and shame and so on that might be there before we go on to relapse prevention. So that's what I thought we were supposed to be doing, Alex. Does that fit with your memory of what happened? Yes, it does. And I've just noted down then the relief that I felt when you said that I wasn't well. Mm. And I can't explain the feeling of that. 
because it made me realise I can actually get better. Yeah. And that was excellent. I think it's a really important point that we often forget how powerful that can be, an acknowledgement that there is something wrong, it's got a name, and we've got treatment for it. That just in itself can be so important, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing for me was I felt an immediate connection with you, and that generated a lot of early trust, so I felt safe to open up to you. I think you'd termed it prolonged exposure therapy. That was awesome. Very challenging. Mm. Uh, to think about the different events that then some were were pretty ordinary in my brain. But using that tape recorder and playing it back daily, I used to go into the bedroom by myself and just kneel at the bed actually, put the tape recorder on the bed knowing that I was going to cry. And I did that, <clears throat> cried and cried and cried and cried. And until the end of that week, I wasn't crying anymore. Mm. <laughs> was certainly wasn't smiling, but my brain had done whatever your brain does and it and it worked. So that was that was fantastic. I think the other thing that was great for me was learning about suds management mm-hmm. and things to bring you back into the moment, which I think was really cool. Breathing and then also physical exercise for me was a key and I love physical exercise and it made me feel alive again to actually go back to the gym. And I'm a great believer in exercise, absolutely, yeah. If we uh, think about all that adrenaline that's pumping around your body and it's got nowhere to go, so physical exercise helps burn it up. Okay, that's good, that's good. So we did stick pretty well to our treatment plan, actually, by the sound of it, which is great. Were there, and I'm, I wonder from either of you, whether there were any setbacks or um, stumbling blocks in treatment that you remember? Well, I should add one last point. A key point that was good was that Lynn came. Mm. So uh, I felt quite alone, I guess, on reflection. And with Lynn coming in the car, you know, the whatever hour trip, and talking about it and being open to it all, um, it was. It made me feel alive again. I, yeah, absolutely. I agree entirely. I was going to mention that, that I think, you know, I do always try to involve partners in treatment, but that's usually a brief meeting at the beginning, maybe something in the middle, something at the end. But Lynn, was, you, you, were, you were very much more involved in that, oh, weren't you? Absolutely. And I think, I think for me as the partner of Alex, being able to sit with you as well for the first few minutes of each consultation or mm. most consultations to be heard. It's a fairly lonely place to be. Um, this is Alex's journey and and there was privacy concerns around that for him at the time as he unwrapped what was in front of him. So being uh, being heard, I, abs- I would agree with Alex. I, there was a rapport built between us, you and I, mm-hmm. and I certainly felt heard and felt supported by you were saying and able to explain things that were going on for Alex and yeah. in a way I understood. And just for the benefit of, of listeners, that um, we usually, all three of us met for the first five or ten minutes of each session, didn't we, and we sort of reviewed how things had been, and then you left and went off and had a coffee and we did the, the, the hard work. Yes. Good, good. Look, I think it was it was crucial. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you raised that, Alex. I just wanted to mention briefly that a, a couple of kind of setbacks that I saw were, first of all, the issue of ongoing involvement with CFA and the ambiguity around that. And, you, you know, we talked before about your commitment to the organisation and how difficult it is actually to pull back and say, I'm not going to answer the page, I'm not going to go. So, And I think we saw that a few times during treatment, that that was a bit of a stumbling block. Does that make sense to either of Oh, absolutely. Uh, no was never an option. And also, I think the skill level that Alex has and the understanding that he's one of only a few that had those skills, should the other two or three people not turn up to a particular event, the, the community's left vulnerable. So... 
yeah, Absolutely. there's a true commitment there. Yeah. yeah, and dealing with those thoughts and appraisals and interpretations that, you know, I should be there and I'm a bad person if I don't go and all that, that's part of treatment, certainly. The other thing I thought, you know, um, not a setback, but, you know, something we needed to be aware of was that you had a whole lot of other stresses in your life, like many people, and you had a really stressful job and you had, I think, you're, you had one or two children doing um, HSC or final year school exams, which we've all been through and it's an incredibly stressful time for everybody. And all these kinds of things make you... They give you less resources available to deal with the, the trauma, don't they? So I wouldn't say it was a setback, but something we, we, we needed to be aware of. But thankfully, treatment was pretty successful. So over the course of about 12, 15 sessions, you did respond very, very well. I thought that you, you report were reporting to me, both of you reporting that things were going much better. You're feeling much better. Your scores on the regular measures that we used were dropping substantially. And so we decided to finish treatment. I wonder, Alex, because, you know, it's a, it's a big deal terminating treatment. I just wonder how you felt about it. And, and uh, oh, I, <laughs> I was reflecting on that and I've, I talked to Lynn about that. I was scared. And but I, you know what, Mark, you're very skillful. You uh, you ease me out well. <laughs> you, you pride me out well. But no, but all seriousness, I think our last few couple of sessions that were regular sessions were quite optimistic, and I felt really good about that. So I had my own ability or courage to to step away. But it was scary. You gave me the right encouragement, I guess, to do that. But you're always there if I needed to give you a call. I think I might have called you a couple of times. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, the product now is that I feel great, so... Good, good, because I was going yeah. to ask how things mm. are now, so generally things are OK. Oh, yeah. in my mind, absolutely. We've got the old Alex. And I'm not saying the old Alex back, because that's not possible. There's mm. uh, no path is gone down. But, yeah, we're yeah in a much better place. Yeah, great, great. So in terms of quality of life and so on, that, that kind of stuff is, yeah, good. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'm obviously... I'm even going 110 on the freeway. Oh, yeah, it's scary. (laughs) (laughs) Scary for the rest of us. (laughs) Um, That's brilliant, and I'm, of course, thrilled that I was able to help. Um, I just wonder, both of you, looking back now, whether there was anything you learned from the experience or or perhaps what advice you you would give others having been through it yourselves? Perhaps if we start with you, Alex. Yeah, sure. No worries. Look, I've pondered this thought and it's quite important that I want to um, just get a little message across I guess and I think what I learned was some fundamental life skills um, I think overall the emergency services approach mental health in a good way but the journey for emergency services mental health is a, a maturing feast we'll call it it needs improving look my both my brothers are old um, paramedics, we'll call them. Mm. Both retired out early, both PTSD. You know, it's funny you should say that about my family. I think my father had PTSD. He had a very responsible role in the Second World War. I'm glad you mentioned that. I didn't want to mention that up front, but yeah. I think it is perhaps important that, you know, this is, uh, yeah, your brother's had PTSD. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, I remember saying to you, Mark, during one of our treatments, if you ever want to do a special study on families, yeah. <laughs> families that do emergency service and have suffered a similar thing. Then, okay, yes. Yeah. So other things? I think early awareness is the key. So early awareness increases the chances of early intervention and treatment success, I guess, which potentially leads to reduced impacts. I think that's my thoughts. And 
it means if imagine this cycle, imagine if that cycle was broken or, or actually reinforced in terms of positive treatment, it means that you can do what you love for longer. It means you can volunteer longer. And for me, like high-risk industries like the emergency services, where you're meant to be bulletproof, I feel that there needs to be reaching into members at the grassroots rather than members relying on things to ring when mm. you're in trouble. Mm. Which is so which we need to be more assertive ex- in absolutely. terms of going in there and helping yeah. people, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Um, any other points or Lynn, did you want uh, to- Look, just in support to what Alex was saying, absolutely. You, the PTSD is not new. You know, we've, we've gone through world wars and know that, know that PTSD is there. The one main takeaway for me is that talking won't break you. And I'm sure that's not new. And I'm sure that has been a past treatment for PTSD, perhaps. I'm not, mm. yeah. I'm just, I think, a, not, angry is not the right word, but a little bit surprised that frameworks aren't there in for the likes of voluntary services. Uh, I do think it's getting better, but we've clearly got a long way to go, haven't we? And, and um, absolutely. Yeah, go on. So uh, I was just saying, I, I trialled an approach because I've, wanted to see what would happen. So I actually tried an approach that was a combination of a lived experience person coupled with a mental health professional. And we presented to about 30 firefighters and the results were just fantastic. And the reason being is because honest conversations could be had. So I got up as a lived experience person, revealed I was vulnerable to people in the room. They didn't know my story. I guess it created this respect, not not towards me, but this respect to the sit to the story. And then I could introduce someone like you, Mark, and sure. say, well, is this guy Mark? He actually knows a lot about this mental health stuff. You need to listen to this guy. And that worked really well. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a limited amount that people like me can achieve just getting up and preaching and so on, you know. I think that's absolutely right. That's a very good point to make, Alex. Did either of you want to say anything about partners? To me, imagine you've got this, you've got a loved one that wants to go into a volunteer emergency service. So there is no way that that person's experience isn't going to impact on the family because you're going to see a lot of trauma. So I think the thing that I talked to Lynn about was that Lynn, and I shouldn't talk for you, Lynn, I don't think you were made aware of the potential impacts that could happen. So Lynn being closest to me, imagine if Lynn knew about the early, early signs, awareness. So we should be yeah, working with partners proactively. Yeah, to a degree. But Alex, you were very skilled at keeping a lot of this from me because of the, the, the awfulness of, of the trauma. I think uh, following on from talking won't break you, it's also being able to find someone who's unshockable, which is you, Mark, mm. in our mind, um, to be able to download uh, and talk through what what events have happened because um, I'd imagine I'd be walking away with uh, an equally, no, not equal, a heavy load if um, Alex had have downloaded all of that onto Ab- me. Absolutely. I think it's a really important point to make and as clinicians I think we need to remember that, that actually there's very often no one else that the person can talk yes. to in the kind of detail that we need to, to for it to be therapeutic and that as clinicians we need to demonstrate that we're strong enough to carry this kind of load. Look, I'm really sorry to hurry things along, but time is going on. I thought that was wonderful, a great discussion. I'm sure it would be really useful for our listeners and I'd really like to thank you both. You know, I, I don't underestimate what a brave and generous thing it is has been for you to do today. So I really want to thank uh, both of you very, very much indeed, Alex and Lynn. Thank you. Yeah. No yeah. problem at all, Mark.
To our listeners, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us on this episode of MHPN Presents In The First Person. If you want to learn more about Alex Lynn or myself, our bios can be found on the landing page of this episode. You'll also find there the link to MHPN's feedback survey, and we really do value your, your, your feedback, so please get on there. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Let us know what you'd like on future MHPN podcasts. If you want to stay up to date with future episodes, of this series in the first person but also any other MHPN podcast make sure that you subscribe to MHPN Presents and if you enjoyed this conversation can I do a blatant plug and plug another series that uh, I worked with MHPN on called Trauma and Resilience where we look at over six episodes around trauma and also stay tuned for a new series which is going to be released at the end of November 2022 The Mental Health of First Responders, which you'll find on the Mental Health In Focus show. So thank you very much again to all those involved. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from Alex. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And goodbye from Lynn. Goodbye from me. (laughs) Thanks again to everybody and bye for now. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 